I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Every year around this time, we honor the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., a leader in the civil rights movement whose words and ideas helped to inspire the nation to change. Dr. King's words were so powerful that we still call on them today to guide us in the pursuit of equality and justice. But of course, Dr. King wasn't the only person leading the charge for civil rights. Today, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of a This Is Nashville episode from last summer, honoring the legacy of Nashville's own Freedom Riders. But first, one of Tennessee's major state agencies has been in the news a lot lately, and not for good reasons. The Department of Children's Services is in charge of investigating allegations of child abuse and did overseas foster care for the children then moved into state custody. And right now, DCS is in crisis. It is struggling to find stable foster homes, all while experiencing massive turnover among the frontline employees who work with these families. WPLN Special Projects Editor Tony Gonzalez has been covering the topic for a decade, and he joins us now to share some recent reporting that hasn't gotten as much attention. Tony, welcome back to This Is Nashville. Hey, Khalil. Good to be here. Thanks for being here with us. So, you know, you put a story out recently about the findings from a group called the Second Look Commission. Why are you paying attention to their recommendations? Yeah, well, and, and most people probably aren't. A lot of people won't ever hear Second Look Commission. It's not uh, particularly prominent. They basically put out one report a year, and it actually comes out like right around Christmas and New Year's. Hmm. So I think it kind of gets overlooked. Um, but I've been reading it. Uh, once a year for a while, and this time with all of the the DCS concerns that are out there, I thought you know needed to take a look at the second look this year. Um, so what it is, this is a group of of experts. There's social workers, law enforcement, uh, attorneys, doctors, uh, and some state lawmakers as well. They're all on the second look commission. This group was created by the legislature about a decade ago with the mission of checking in on how DCS is doing. So that's where the name comes from, second look. They're kind of giving a uh, a second look to the work that DCS is doing to see how they're doing. Um, and because they have a charter in state law, they were created in state law, they actually get access to um, DCS case files, which mm -hmm. are normally very private. So they really can look really closely at what's going on. And they can also look at data uh, from DCS as well. well. What are they trying to figure out? Yeah, their assignment is pretty specific uh, and it, it's very serious. It's it's heavy. They are studying how many Tennessee children suffer uh, child abuse more than one time. Mm. So so after the family has maybe come to the attention of DCS and then something happens again, you know, and any abuse is troubling, mm -hmm. but they are really trying to look at, you know, the decision making that DCS is doing, uh, you know, and, and whether maybe kids are ending up back in a dangerous situation. Uh, I actually spoke to the director of the Second Look Commission, Kylie Graves, and she really emphasized what's at stake here. One of the greatest responsibilities that we have as a state is to protect children and to protect children from abuse and neglect, and particularly ones who have already experienced that traumatic event. So we look at these cases, we review a sample. Sometimes we see recommendations that come out of just one case. Sometimes we see the same challenge happening again and again. So once Second Look crunches the data and looks at individual cases, they put out a report. It's actually pretty concise, around 20 pages this year with their findings. It doesn't feel great to be thinking about repeat child abuse, but why is that important? 
Yeah. Well, so this is one way to measure how a department like DCS is doing. So there are various ways to do that. I mean, at one point, Tennessee was actually under court orders to try to meet like 100 different goals. So this would be something like you can measure, you know, how many caseloads does the average caseworker have? Is it is it enough or is it too many? Um, how stable are the lives of uh, kids in foster care? Like, are they having to move between foster homes? So there's a few ways that you can kind of get a grasp for how the how DCS is doing. But then the other huge thing is. Um, you know, once DCS is involved, uh, how are they doing with what I would call life and death decisions? Mm. Um, so this is where you have the very severe abuse um, or, you know, the the hardest question to ask is, did any kids or, or teenagers end up dying in foster care? Mm. Uh, or did any, you know, children who caseworkers were trying to help, did they end up, you know, dying in a home? So uh, it's that level of of very serious uh, inquiry that the Second Look Commission is is working on. Wow, this takes me back to that time, my time, my past working with um, disadvantaged high school youth. This is really heavy stuff. So, all right. So, what is the Second Look Commission? What are they raising alarm about this year? Yeah. Well, uh, the sad part is that a lot of what they pinpoint kind of repeats many years. It kind of feels like some chronic challenges. Mm. Um, but a couple of things that stand out this year, um, they are worried about vulnerable kids um, being returned to parents who are not exactly following a judge's orders. So a lot of times families, you know, they'll have some goals that they need to meet. And they've found examples where kids are being put back in homes and then maybe suffering abuse again. Mm. Um, they also uh, kind of want, they want DCS to be a little bit more proactive in checking on checking in on families when they've had like a major change in the household, maybe someone moving in or moving out, maybe something's changed with work. So they want DCS to be more proactive at kind of checking back on families a little more often. Now, you mentioned that Second Look also handles data. What stands out from the numbers? Yeah, so not a lot of good news there uh, on the numbers. The toughest one, we already mentioned uh, child fatalities earlier. So for the most recent year they looked at, uh, which is like the middle of 2021, through the middle of 2022, that, that one-year period, there were actually seven children who died after their abuse had already come to the attention of the state. Mm. Um, there's a lot of privacy about the specifics of those incidents, but seven deaths, uh, that's more in one year than Tennessee has had since 2014. So it's, wow. it's not a great sign. Um, then there's this uh, larger group that they're looking at in the numbers. So there were more than 500 Tennessee children who suffered uh, severe abuse for the second or subsequent time. Um, so for several years, that number had been coming down. They were seeing less severe uh, repeat child abuse. The pandemic sort of changed that. The numbers mm. started to move back up. So we've seen uh, those abuse numbers trending in the wrong direction. Well, what should we expect lawmakers to take up? Yeah, so we know that there's a lot of interest in increasing funding for DCS overall. Uh, the goal there is to improve pay for staffing, and to try to retain more of their their staff, there's been huge turnover at the agency. The other thing, though, is it's it's not we've we've said DCS a lot here, but DCS does not operate in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're in they're part of the the justice system, and there's the attorneys and the judges, uh, and the second low commission knows that a lot of their members uh, are in those communities as well. So this year, they had several recommendations about district attorneys um, because they can see across the state that prosecutors. Uh, across the different counties, they're not always making the same decision when it comes to, to children and families. So they want more consistency there. They also noted that a lot of district attorneys, about two-thirds of them, are not even filing the reports that they are required to file about child abuse 
county by county. So they want district attorneys to be more consistent. They want them to file these reports. Um, and then uh, the second look is also asking lawmakers to approve more funding for prosecutors and more training. Uh, they're also hoping to do a sort of a study uh, to better understand why things are different from county to county. Um, so ideally, there'd be a little bit more uh, consistency for kids and families across Tennessee. Now, as I stated, you've been covering this for 10 years. You're also a father of a young child. How does it feel when you dig into these type of stories? It does not feel good. Um, and I will say, when I first started covering DCS, and I did an investigative project that was the better part of like two years of my life, I was not a father at that point. Mm-hmm. It is harder for me now to sort of read some of these reports and files now that I have a five-year-old daughter. So um, I've always thought, you know, DCS does a really hard job. Uh, I mean, they get a lot of criticism, but they're also doing like the most difficult job you can imagine. So I think I have a lot of empathy and understanding for that and and sort of what the family dynamics are. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not pleasant to report on, but I think it's, you know, as Kylie said in, in, in her comments, it's like the most important thing that we could, we need to be getting right as a state. That's WPLN editor Tony Gonzalez. You can find his reporting on the Second Look Commission and a link to all of their findings in today's episode post at thisisnashville.org. Tony, thanks for being here and thanks for your reporting. Thanks, Cleo. We have to take a short break. When we come back, in honor of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we're bringing you a rebroadcast of our May episode on Nashville's Freedom Riders. Don't go away. This is Nashville. Khalil Kalona, and this is Nashville. Picture the scene. It's May 1961, and you've just heard about a group of black and white students traveling by bus to Alabama, trying to challenge the vice of segregation and getting mobbed by the KKK. Would you volunteer to go next? For some college students in Nashville, the answer was yes. The late Rip Patton remembers the story of how that journey began. We figured that our phones were tapped here in Nashville because about two-something in the morning, John Siegenthaler, who was sent by Bobby Kennedy to get CORE out of Birmingham, get him on a plane to New Orleans and then back to Washington, D.C., was in his hotel room. Uh, He said that he was in his hotel room feeling good because he did what the president of the United States and the Attorney General told him to do, and he was very successful with that. So his phone rings, and it's Bobby Kennedy. And Bobby Kennedy said, who in the hell is Diane Nash? Call her and tell her not to send those students down on a freedom ride. So he calls her, and he's pleading with her, and and she said to him, sir, we know that somebody's going to die, but we're not going to let violence overrule nonviolence. Our first group has left Nashville already. You're a little bit too late. In honor of Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we're rebroadcasting an episode we first aired in May on the day 61 years ago that this group of black college students left Nashville for Birmingham to join the Freedom Ride. My first guest, Joshua Moore, is the producer and host of the Nashville public radio podcast Versify in its 2020 season 
Local poets interviewed four of Nashville's freedom writers and then wrote poems based on their stories. Joshua, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So you grew up in Nashville. What did you learn about the freedom writers growing up? You know, you hate to say it, but frankly, next to nothing. Mm. Yeah, there was not, you know, I took advanced history courses in high school and there wasn't a ton of focus on kind of localized history or state history. But even when there was, um, it was not a story that if there was, it was like a footnote, to, you know, the larger narratives of the civil rights movement. I didn't know in any way how pivotal of a role they played. So what surprised you as you were working on this project? What did you figure out? Um, I think what surprised me is how pervasive um, the efforts were, like how much of the community was involved at different levels and the ways in which um, beyond the students themselves, like their support systems, though they might not have been overtly out marching with them, were working behind the scenes to really kind of like put their, you know, put their back behind the movement. Some of them selling off property, some of them like representing them pro bono. Um, you know, in the case, many people are familiar with the story of Z. Alexander Luby's house being bombed, but he was a representative for the students in the sit in the sit-ins. And so like all of the network of people who kind of undergirded them to make their work possible. Um, it was stunning. You know, the interviews you all did for each episode really gave these complex stories a chance to breathe. In one episode, Rip Patton explains how the Nashville students ended up in Jackson, Mississippi, were arrested and sent to Parchman Penitentiary. So there were over 300 and something like 325 of us in Parchman. And we never got outside. The whole time we were there, we were inside in our cell block and in our jail cells. And of course the guards, would, we would sing. Again, we announced our presence through our songs. And we would sing songs and the guards didn't like that. And so, well, uh, the only thing they could do was to take something away from us. For example, a mattress. This mattress was probably an inch thick on a steel bunk bed. And so they, if you don't stop that singing, we're gonna take your mattress away. Okay, open the door. They'd open the door and we'd throw our mattresses out in the hallway. You can take our mattress, oh yes. You can take our mattress, oh yes. You can take our mattress, you can take our mattress. You can take our mattress, oh yes. So they would do different things to us. Even the food, they would put stool softener in the food and you're sitting in there. They turn the heat on in Mississippi in the summer during the day air conditioner on at night and turn the water off so that you could not flush the toilet that was in your uh, the commode and you and your cellmate you know trying to make decisions who's gonna go first <laughs> all these different things but uh, you know we were there for a purpose my next guest is Destiny Birdsong who interviewed Nashville freedom writer Dr. Rip Patton Destiny what was it like hearing his story in person it was life-changing for me. I feel like I heard it at the exact time I needed to. I was undergoing some really drastic life changes. And to hear about the resolve of, of these, you know, teenagers and young adults, like, fighting against this, this overwhelming um, racism and these structures of power that, you know, even invaded their bodies. Like you just played the clip of him talking about the stool softener. 
um, it really changed how I thought about myself. It changed how I thought about the Black people who came before me. And it changed how I thought about the power of nonviolent resolve. You know, unfortunately, Dr. Patton passed away before I ever had the pleasure of meeting him. Destiny, tell me, what was he like? <laughs> he was wonderful. Um, he was very kind. He was incredibly knowledgeable. He was a little bit flirtatious, which I appreciated. You know, clearly he had excellent taste. <laughs> um, um, but one of my really powerful memories of him is um, we had a dinner shortly after recording the episodes for Versify. And the dinner was in the civil rights room of, um, of, the, of the main branch of the public library. And after that, uh, well, it was lunch actually. So after the lunch was over, there was a bunch of food left and he took the food um, to his church because his church did outreach programs for unhoused people. And just that act for me really made clear that his activism was lifelong and his activism was um was a practice that happened, whether the mic was on, whether the camera was on, he really did devote his entire life to um, trying to make the world a better place. So he was just, he was a really wonderful human being. I, I think about him often. I love to hear that, thinking about this whole situation and how awful it was. When Rip describes it, there's like this fondness in his voice. What do you make of that? Is that the magnanimity of his spirit you just described to us? You know, I think so. Um, we were kind of stunned during the interview, Joshua and I, because he was describing these really harrowing experiences. And we were just like, what? <laughs> like there was a moment during the interview where I was crying, um, but he was so composed. And I think that you know, I, I I hate to sound like a kooky poet, but I think that some people are just born for that kind of life and they have that that moral fiber that allows them to be able to resist and and still maintain a sense of wholeness. And he clearly had that. So, you know, maybe it was. I, I don't know. I still think about what it had to take, you know, at 19 and 20 to make these life-changing decisions, to risk life and limb, um, and and also risk their educations, which was a surprising thing I discovered during the interviews that they were expelled for their activism. Um, I, I don't know what it takes, but whatever it was, he had it. You know, not everyone was on board with these ideals of nonviolence. Dr. Freddie Leonard talked to local spoken word artist Saran Thompson about how it felt to endure such hatred without fighting back. It was, it was like, like like being brainwashed. You know, I'd hate to say it that way, but but anytime you're you're taught not to defend yourself, that's that's difficult. I've seen people beaten. I mean, severely beaten. How do you how do you stand by and watch that without being bothered inside? They got some kind of courage out of beating us because they knew we would not fight back. We had workshops, and the workshops sometimes would be real tense. Sometimes in the workshop, you want to fight. Hmm. You know, like, man, you didn't have to throw me on the floor. Or, you know, and they say, well, that's what's going to happen to you when you go downtown to the lunch counter. Hmm. You know, this is what's going to happen. 
So y'all would kind of act out yeah. some of the scenarios. Mm-hmm. That's what we did. Were there yeah. a lot of people that buckled under the pressure? Most people did. Mm-hmm. Most people did not. Most people did not participate in the civil rights movement. Most black people didn't. Mm-hmm. They were not going for it. Most black people said, "No, I am not going to be nonviolent." You beat me enough doing slavery. Uh-uh, no. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a, a discipline that was, it was something. I mean, you know, just imagine you sitting next to a girl and hear this white man come and they put a cigarette light out, well, put a cigarette out on her. And when I came up, your mama told you, don't let anybody mess with your sister. Mm-hmm. It was like a rule. You don't mess with the women in the family. And then you're in a situation where you see the women being snatched, pulled by their hands, dragged across the floor and kicked and spit on, you know. And, and then you tell them, the ones who's doing this, I love you. You know, that's that, that's that indoctrination from those preachers, mm-hmm. you know, because they had us thinking, that these we're gonna get to these people's hearts, and we gonna you know we gonna make them realize that we are humans and we are their brothers, and we love them, and they will eventually love us. But that didn't happen. They changed the laws, but they didn't change their hearts. Spoken word artist Saran Thompson, who interviewed Dr. Leonard, is here with us now. That's heavy, right there. What Dr. Leonard was saying. Mm-hmm. How did you feel hearing that? Being honest, it was actually a bit overwhelming. Um, I think when we compare how we're taught and how the civil rights era was kind of the perspective looking from the outside in, it's like, oh, okay, it's like watching a movie. But talking to him and him really being able to paint these vivid pictures and you being able to really step inside of that, it's, I mean, it's arguably some of the most horrific stuff that I could imagine. Um, And not even just what's happening to them from other people, but that internal struggle and wrestle of, okay, well, if I'm committed to this nonviolence, but it's literally fight or flight and I can't fight and I can't fly, Mm -hmm. what am I supposed to do? You know, looking back, you kind of alluded to it, the civil rights movement, we love to really glorify the nonviolence um, as the only valid way to make that change. But Dr. Leonard points out that that is a lot to ask. Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, when he was, there were so many stories um, that he was telling and just thinking about even when they were on the bus and then once the bus got raided and they escaped out of broken back window and they ended up running into a church service and hiding in the choir mm. while they were looking for them, you know, and just thinking about like everything that's happening. Okay. Well, you can't fight back. Cause obviously if you fight back, you're, you're probably going to die on the spot um, versus people that just get beaten and just torn up in that moment from that, from him um, doing the lunch counter sit-ins to, um, the movie theater sit-ins and when he's talking about getting beat with a billy club it's i mean it's horrendous um and then as he's talking about kind of his later perspective and shift i was kind of like i'm not too mad at this Mm. you know um i don't really know where i would align like in that moment because i can't fully say because i wasn't in it but um yeah 
his later his later perspective made a lot more sense to me. You can see the perspective. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're reflecting on Nashville's Freedom Riders with a few local poets who interviewed them for Nashville Public Radio's Versify podcast. So we find out from the podcast the Freedom Riders were not glorified in Nashville for many decades. In fact, far from it. The state of Tennessee actually created a law to punish students who took part in civil disobedience by allowing them to be expelled from state institutions if they were convicted of a crime in any state. When Dr. Etta Simpson Ray came home from Mississippi, she found out her mother had gotten a letter stating that Etta had been expelled from Tennessee A&I for being arrested as a freedom writer. Let's listen. I can remember that the area we were in, picture perfect. I have come into the room from outside and I was in the hallway. I can remember just her holding that letter in her hand, standing in the hallway in our house. And she was crying because I had been put out of school. It just just hurt her that bad. I would have been the first kid to go to college. I still vividly can see her right now holding that paper and crying. It has never left my mind. How did you feel at that moment? That I had let her, let her and my daddy down. Mm-hmm. I had let her and daddy down. But it was like, it wasn't nothing I could do but just you stand there and she, it was just so overwhelming. I just couldn't, I couldn't say nothing, I couldn't move. I, I don't know how long we stood there. I can't even remember where I hugged her or whether I started crying. All I can remember is her in that hallway. I think it's easy to forget that the Freedom Riders weren't necessarily hailed as heroes right away. They faced heavy consequences. Joshua, why do you think that is important for people to know? You know, I think that it's easy to kind of make mythic figures of people who do incredible things in their lifetime and to forget um, their humanity in the process mm-hmm. and to really be grounded in the fact of like their reality, that these were many of them teenagers. These were young people who had dreams and aspirations and who were mortgaging their entire futures with, if we're being honest, no certainty that the efforts that they were putting forward would bear any fruit um, and that the consequences they suffered were life-changing and that they are things that stay with them for their entire lives. Um, that that bit of tape, that like moment in the interview with Miss Etta is one of the more haunting ones for me um, because this woman who has lived a full life, you know, who even though an element of her trajectory was derailed, who has had a family and many grandchildren and something that is still so concrete for her is what she had to sacrifice so that, you know, we could even be in this room talking about her life mm-hmm. um, and that she had no idea that we would be. Um, like, I think many of them had faith, but faith is the evidence of things not seen. So it, it just, um, I don't know, it, it really gets to me to think about, like, how much she gave up to to make many of us possible. How much all of them gave up and the stories of people we haven't even heard of. Right. And what what they survived, which is when I look back at it, I'm like, it's this not that long before I was born. Mm. You know? And so it's like conversations to have with my family members, with my parents, uh, with aunts and uncles about what did you go through and what did you sacrifice 
because these were made at a time where public support was virtually non-existent and the resistance to the movement was widespread. Destiny, talk to me about how looking at the entirety of the movement as it actually happened, how is that? how does that help to give us clarity and perspective? You know, I think that there's a lot we can learn about um, how organized they were, how undeterred they were, how deeply invested they were in community uplift, right? Like as Josh was saying, like the potential of sacrificing their own lives for, you know, the greater good of the people who were around them and the people who would come after them. I I just, I think that those are things that sometimes get lost in like the shininess of, of, of the platform of the stage. And, you know, I think, I think those are the things that, um, for me, like we're so powerful to just be sitting next to and and hearing, you know, the life stories of. You know, Dr. Ray also says she didn't talk about this for a long time. And her sister, who actually had to have emergency surgery after getting injured during a protest, still won't talk about it. Joshua, did you run into any reluctance when you were asking people to share their stories? You know, yes, honestly. Um, initially, we wanted to interview as many of the the 14 students from Tennessee A&I as possible. Um, but there were some who, um, you know, for whatever reason, uh, were, were either unable to or unwilling to, to participate. And also elements of their stories where, like you heard in that moment, or I suppose maybe the tape ended just before, but... Um, Miss Etta, even when she was telling that story, she was like, that's as much as I can say mm. um, about that moment. And there, I do remember Dr. Patton himself saying that some of the Freedom Riders years later decided to, you know, go into therapy to work through some of the things, some of the trauma that almost certainly was like lingering with them emotionally um, and sometimes physically. Um, but that he personally, you know, he went to one session and he was like, I decided that I couldn't do any more because I thought it would unearth too much. So I think that for for many of them, like their return to those spaces, one, it was like such a gift for them to be willing to relive what I think was often a very traumatic moment. But also, I'm glad that you pointed to kind of like the levity because across the board, all all three, all four of them um, would have these moments of humor in telling these really dark stories, which I think is a hallmark of like black survival in terms of like being able to find joy in even the most difficult moments, but also is that they were making lifelong connections as well, that there were moments of like intimacy and tenderness and joy among the students when they were in parchment prison, when they were singing through the walls to let each other know that they were still breathing, you know? Um, And even when you would see them interact today, there was still clearly that sense of connectedness and intimacy. So I think it's that when they return to that space, it's bounded, you know, they have to have, a means by which they can enter and exit without being mm-hmm. pulled under. Saran, did you find those moments of light and joy in your interviews? Oh, a hundred percent. Dr. Leonard, he is hilarious. Um, there was the part I was talking about where he was saying that he was standing in line and um, they basically would line up at the Tennessee theater and they would occupy the line so that this way the Uh, white customers could not get to the ticket booth. And whenever police were called and they were told to move, they refused. Or they would go to the front, be told, hey, you can't get a ticket here, go to the back of the line, just keep doing over and over. And so um, 
basically, Dr. Leonard had a reputation for being kind of the hard-headed, stubborn person out of his group. And <laughs> so he, he alludes to the story about how basically he wasn't afraid of like the police in a billy club and he wasn't afraid of like standing up there. And mm-hmm. um, he ended up getting beat on the head and it kind of became like a, a joke amongst them in a real way of a uh, significant way of downplaying what actually happened and what would be classified as a very traumatic experience, but it's something that you can still kind of find like that, that reprieve in that moment. So, you know, y'all conducted these interviews in the fall of 2019 then 2020 rolls around. I'm curious about this experience, like interviewing the freedom riders, learning about the activism of the civil rights movement in the sixties. And that happened 60 years ago. How did it affect how you perceived the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and the global protests. Destiny? Conducting these interviews makes me more hopeful, but then seeing acts of violence like the murder of George Floyd, like the murders of um, the customers at the Topps grocery store in Buffalo, I, I don't know how hopeful I am for an immediate future. You know, and a lot of that has to do with um, what's happening on Capitol Hill, what's happening in the Supreme Court. But I hold on to the memories of those interviews as proof that change is possible. Um, I just question how uh, how soon that change will come. So, and I, I'm thinking of the clip that you just played with um, Dr. Leonard talking about the laws being changed, but not the hearts. Mm-hmm. I feel like we are seeing that, like, on a global level right now, and and sometimes that makes me a little less hopeful. But I hold on to um, the legacies of the Freedom Riders as proof that many things are possible. I don't know if many things are impending. Mm. Saran, you know, towards the end of my interview, I had asked Dr. Leonard kind of what his perspective on things that were happening in today's time. And he kind of in a in a surprising way was saying how he thinks the condition and the state of things in today's time is arguably worse Mm. than what it was. Um, back then. And then, you know, just when you incorporate elements like social media, so from every small crime to every major world level crime, like you get blasted and embedded just either with the facts of what happened, you get op eds, you get um, people that basically try to mitigate it and make it seem as if it's not happening. And there's a lot that happens mentally for us internally, externally. Um, in our household, our community, and it makes it hard to really grab onto something tangible. Uh, one of the biggest lessons I learned from Dr. Leonard was that, well, two things. So one is that the solution doesn't always arrive the way that you would envision it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the result that they were aiming for, it kind of manifested, but not necessarily in the way that they would anticipate it. Um, But also understanding that in order for us to achieve a better tomorrow for equality and equity um, and safety is that we're we're like a car and we all have our own roles to play. So some of us are the brakes, some of us are the engines, some of us are the blinkers, 
uh, the windshield wipers, something that may not feel super significant, but we do all have a role to play. And understanding that as long as we continue to put our energy and effort to move this vehicle forward, then we will achieve a bigger, better, brighter tomorrow for everyone. I want to say thank you to poet Saram Thompson, Destiny Birdsong, and Joshua Moore. Really, thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in for this rebroadcast of our episode about Nashville's Freedom Riders. When we come back, we'll meet one activist who was at the heart of the civil rights movement in the 60s. So don't go away. This is Nashville. Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We've been reflecting this hour on the legacy of the Freedom Riders and their fight to end segregation. The fight for equality and the work didn't begin or end with the Freedom Rides. That's something my next guest knows well. Professor Gloria McKissack is a lifelong educator and civil rights activist, and she joins me now. Professor McKissack, welcome to This is Nashville, and thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me on the program today. Oh, wonderful. It is an honor to have you with us. Now, you know, we just spent some time looking back at the Freedom Riders and what they were able to accomplish. You were a student at TSU at the time. Tell me, what do you remember about that moment in Nashville? Oh, um, well, back then it was uh, A&I uh, had become the university uh, as yet, but I came to A&I as a freshman the same year that the Freedom Rides had taken place uh, that summer. In fact, that summer I had been a, a debutante. I'm from Detroit, Michigan. My background and experience is uh, quite different from those who uh, lived in the South and participated in the movement. When I came to Nashville, it was really a cultural shock the things that I saw and experienced. Uh, um, I grew up in an integrated neighborhood, uh, into integrated schools, uh, when often I was only black in, in the class and always in the minority. And um, it, it was quite different uh, coming uh, south. But when I arrived, I was very naive about so many things. And I remember being in the student union and the Freedom Riders had been expelled from A&I. I knew little or nothing about that. I, uh, in fact, I'd been in the Ebony Magazine as a debutante when the Freedom Rides took took place. I All was right. in, in another world, but it was the Freedom Riders who, um, encouraged me to become a part of the movement when so many other students um, had backed away from that because no one wanted to be expelled uh, from school. And it was Freddie Leonard, in fact, who was one of the expelled freedom riders who came around to us in the student after student in the, in the union and was asking us, would we go downtown and participate in in the sit-ins and it was his encouragement and other freedom riders who recruited me 
into uh, the movement. And that day, I did participate in my first uh, uh, sit-in. What was that like? What was what was it like at your first sit-in? Oh, it was unbelievable. We went downtown to First Baptist um, Capitol Hill. And unlike the Freedom Riders and so many others who had extensive training with Dr. Lawson, I had maybe 15 minutes. Mm. And he was there and others, but uh, I didn't know who they were at the time. And uh, they just told us how we behaved, how to behave. They gave us a set of rules and to be polite. And when they try to drag you out, just become a sack of potatoes. Don't resist. We just got quick instructions. And we marched downtown silently. We were always silent and dignified. And we went to Wilson Quick. In fact, I have a famous uh, photograph of myself uh, at my first uh, sit-in a photographer took. But our leader was John Lewis, and it shows John leading us to Wilson Quick, which was on Church Street across from the theater. And we went uh, into Wilson Quick, which had a long lunch counter. And I, I need to say, too, there were very few of us, again, because the students had been expelled mm -hmm. and people didn't want to participate because of that. We went in and one by one, we were dragged out of that and tossed on the street. Uh, by then a crowd of people had gathered and were uh, making racial slurs and so forth. And I was one of the last ones. There's also photographs of that. Uh, that was dragged out of uh, Wilson Quick. Again, it was all kind of cultural shock to me. And I, I remember being fearful, probably for the first and only time, because somehow I um, became, um, oh, I don't know. I felt like we were on the right side and God was on our side. And I had a veil of protection, a wall of protection around me. The movement was religious. It was deeply religious. And they dragged me out of there. And I never will forget as they pulled me across that floor. They had asked, you know, us to leave. And we said very politely, we were not leaving. We wanted to be served. And they had soaked up the windows. The customers had left. And it was only the uh, the uh, waitresses and um, what did they call them? Uh, Bus boys who, who were there, those were the guys who swept up and took up trays and, and all. Mm -hmm. And this woman at, at the counter said very sarcastically, don't hurt the little nigger. And for me, a little northern girl from Detroit who was not accustomed to white people talking to you that way. In fact, I grew up to somebody white says something like that. Uh, you beat them up. Mm. You know, we, we didn't tolerate that. Mm -hmm. And for her to say that to me, um, it, it just... It just made me feel so awful. I would just never forget that. And I think that's the moment I became committed to the movement. I said, this is a this is a shame. This is a, the indignity of it all. And I was thrown out into onto church street like a, like a sack of potatoes, like I was trash. You lived this history. And then you went on yeah. to teach this history. Tell me, why did you become a professor? 
Oh, well, the movement had a great impact upon my life. Um, I wanted to teach the truth. I wanted to tell about the movement. I wanted to teach black history uh, to to all the children, black and, and white. I just became interested in, in, in telling the, the real story, the, the full story. In fact, as a teacher, I uh, became, in 1968, the year that they integrated the schools, um, I was fresh out of college and I taught in a newly integrated uh, school and that, that was the experience uh, as well. Everyone had to get used to one another, the students and the faculty. And I have many stories about the integration of the schools and became part of the uh, committee uh, to help integrate the schools and make changes. But um, mm-hmm. I taught the black history. I worked on curriculum guides uh, that in, that was inclusive of uh, our history, as well as women's history, minority history. And uh, I worked on textbook committees, a state textbook uh, committee in selecting uh, books for the schools and making sure that our story was in there, not just pictures, but we were part of the narrative. I just dedicated my life to trying to uh, tell the truth. So as an educator, having dedicated your life to this movement and telling the truth, how do you feel about how history is taught today? Well, they're trying to change history and it, it you know, and exclude those stories. Uh, it really disturbs me, the decisions that have been made about what is taught in the schools today. And it makes me feel like all my work and effort, you know, has gone down the drain because we're moving uh, backwards. Uh, uh, it's very disturbing. And um, we need to continue uh, and dedicate ourselves to making to make sure we're on the boards of education, that we are hiring teachers that are willing to tell the truth and take chances and maybe um, go against the law like we or the mm. rule like we did back then. And, and as Spike Lee said, do the right thing. Yes. Yes, ma'am. You know, I'm really thinking about the mass shooting at the Buffalo supermarket. The 18-year-old white suspect was targeting the black community. Ten people were killed because of the color of their skin. You know, every time this happens, it feels like, here we go again. And let me ask you, Professor McKissick, are we really learning from history as a society? Are we stuck or are we stuck in this perverse loop? Uh, I don't know. Uh, To me, the, the movement is not over. It's not over till it's over. And there will always be racists among us, just like uh, there's still Nazis among us, and we know what they did. Um, So the struggle continues, and we must continue to be activists. I really believe in activism, and I made that an intricate part of, of my teaching that my informed organizations for students to learn how to uh, implement 
Martin Luther King's uh, philosophy of nonviolence was a part of my classwork and all the students knew the rules to conflict resolution and had to use them even if they wanted uh, to discuss with me their grade they had to go through those uh, steps that Dr. King uh, mm -hmm. talked about being nonviolent we have to teach we have to educate mm -hmm. you've lived this we have so much to deal with as a society, as you pointed out, but what does the future look like in your eyes? It, it looks dim. Um, it, it looks dim. And like I said, we have to continue to be activists. And that's the only way that we can continue to move forward because there are those elements in our society uh, that are conservative and want to turn back the clock and we have to stop that. Professor Gloria McKissick was central to the civil rights movement in Nashville in the 60s. She has since dedicated her life to it. And as an activist and educator, Dr. McKissick, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your story with us. I hope to have you back on soon to continue telling us stories. Oh, wonderful. I appreciate you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in for this rebroadcast. Tomorrow, we're back with a new show all about our Metro Council. The state legislature is considering a bill that would shrink the size of Nashville's council by half. Why? And how did we end up with such a large body of council members anyway? Tune in. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tuthope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Dr. Mary Jean Smith, Dr. Etta Marie Simpson Ray, and King Hollands. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.